Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, April 24th. We begin with our weekly chat with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. The mayor discusses yesterday's announcement on the cancellation of both this year's Calgary Stampede and the Calgary Folk Festival and provides more details on the current social distancing guidelines which will now be in place through the summer months. It's a great way to help out during the coronavirus crisis. We learn about the Frontline Fund, which supports more than 100 hospitals right across this country. Next, we get the latest on the tragedy in Nova Scotia. Global News Halifax reporter Sarah Ritchie with more details on how the grim events started over the weekend. And then we head stateside for a COVID-19 update in the U.S. We're joined by Jackson Proskow, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, who discusses Donald Trump's suggestion that disinfectant might be an option for treatment of the coronavirus. And finally, Ramadan is observed by Muslims around the world starting this weekend. In light of the pandemic, we hear how the community is going online to stay connected. Boy, difficult information coming down yesterday with words stampede as well as Folk Fest and all other large festivals cancelled through this summer. Hard announcement for all of us, including Mayor Nahed Nenshi, and he joins us now. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. I, I think most of us understand canceling Stampede was the right thing to do, but boy, it still hurts, doesn't it? It really is tough. Uh, first time in 97 years uh, that we've had to do it. And, you know, I know that the management and the board of the Stampede, you know, struggled mightily to go, is there a way? Mm-hmm. Could we do something different to say that there was still something going on for Stampede in 2020? And ultimately, they said, you know, we've got to put the community first. We've got to put public safety first. And, even as hard as it is, uh, this is the right thing to do. And, you know, it's, it's tough on our psyche because we remember 2013 yep. when we could pull off the stampede and the stampede was our symbol that things were okay and that we were back. And that's just not going to be able to happen this year. In the past 24 hours, Mayor, we've seen a lot on social media surrounding the cancellation. But it's interesting because I, I have not seen, you know, any anger. Uh, I see disappointment and sadness, uh, but people understand what's happening. I think that's right. Uh, People need to process it. You know, even for me, uh, we made the announcement about the Stampede. The Folk Festival made their announcements. Uh, I'll be making a further announcement today. And, you know, it's my job, and I was working through it. And then finally, when I got home late last night after all my meetings, I sat down and I thought, hey, wait a minute. All the things I love to do in July, (laughs) I'm not going to do. And even, even for me, I had to sort of pause and say, yeah. This is uh, it's going to be tough even personally. You know, I've, I've got a big group of friends that I see once a year that we go to folk festival together with. And, uh, you know, I'm probably not going to see those folks this year, at least not in person uh, on the island. So, you know, these are things every one of us has to process. I know you talked about it yesterday, but uh, I think it's true. Our community spirit will for sure come through. Can you talk about uh, what Dr. Hinshaw spoke of yesterday about rules through the summer that those are really all going to stay in place here in Calgary, aren't they? Yeah, so to clarify what Dr. Trinshaw was saying was that there is a rule now, and I actually should talk about that rule. And the rule is that you can't have gatherings of more than 15 people. And she was saying that she doesn't see that rule being significantly relaxed through the summer. So, you know, maybe that number might go up from 15 to 50 or 100, you know, depending on how things are going uh, with the virus. But clearly it's not going to get to a place where you could have big events. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's that's what we've got to continue to do. But do you mind if I just talk about that for a second? Please I've do. Been getting, mm-hmm. I've been getting all kinds of confused messages and people are saying, wait, if the rule is 15 people, then that totally means that I can have a picnic and I can have or I can have people over as long as I keep it to 15. And I want to be clear about what that actually means. 
what that actually means is if there is a funeral, there can be 15 people. If there is a work site, there can be 15 people. It doesn't mean that I can have 15 people in my house. It doesn't mean that I can go and meet friends in the local park uh, as long as we stay six feet apart. The six feet apart is not a magic spell. The six feet apart right now is if you must be out, you have to keep those people uh, six feet away. And I know that there's been a bit of confusion about that. I've heard from people who are having play dates with other kids, families, uh, as long as they keep it under 15. And that's really not what that means. You have to stay for now still within your bubble, right? Your family, the people that you live with, that's your bubble. And the bubbles shouldn't be inter- intersecting with other bubbles because we still have you know, record numbers of counts of new cases almost every day. Yes, the curve is flattening. It is not flat. And for people to say, oh, we're doing okay, let's start easing the restrictions, that's like saying, hmm, this parachute seems to be slowing my rate of descent. I guess I can take it off now. <laughs> well, to- um, we we got to stay disciplined. Mm-hmm. You know, Don't forget that in the Spanish flu, 5 million people died in the first wave, 50 million people died in the second wave. Yeah. To that point, uh, what, you, what you were just covering there, Mayor, uh, are we going to see increased uh, vigilance when it comes to bylaw and Calgary Police Service when it comes to enforcing the social distancing? Yeah, I want to be clear. The vast, vast, vast majority of people are, are doing great. And I know it's hard. And I know, you know, everyone wants to be outside finally after this long winter. But we've got to stay disciplined. And the vast majority of people are doing it. There are some that are not. You know, I heard about a street party on Crescent Road in the mm-hmm. middle of the week. Right. Um, And frankly, for those people, I've I've got no patience. I got no more patience. They know what they should be doing. They're putting other people at risk. You know, even for me, I I guess mayoring is an essential service because I got to go to the emergency ops center a couple times a week. I try to stay home as much as I can. Um, But I have a 79 year old mom who lives with me and I'm always worried about what I'm bringing home and, you know, washing my hands the second I get to the house and wiping down the doorknobs and the light switches and anything that I've touched. But, you know, folks who are being that irresponsible, first of all, I need to repeat, you're not invincible. You know, Idris Elba got the coronavirus and got very ill. (laughs) A gold medalist swimmer from South Africa got very, very ill. A 19-year-old from south of Calgary was in ICU, right? So you're not invincible. You are definitely not as fit as Idris Elba. I'm telling you that now, (laughs) regardless of who you are. Um, but more important, the people around you aren't invincible. And, you know, all we, we've had, you know, you heard on the news, nearly 700 uh, cases uh, that are related to the Cargill meatpacking plant. That was one person who didn't think they were, who thought they were invincible, who went to work. Right. Yeah, right. we, we have so to do our part for careful. sure. We do. Every you're right. Hey, I just want to let you uh, ask you before we let you go. Uh, you mentioned you're going to be making an announcement today. Did you want to, you know, just jump the gun and, and announce it right here, whatever it is? Well, you know, as you as you heard from Dr. Hinshaw, uh, the folk festival in the Stampede are not the only things that uh, we're going to have to do differently or say goodbye to. Um, for this summer, and we'll be talking a little more about that later today. Fair enough. Thank you so much for joining us, as always, hey. Mayor. Thanks, everybody. Clean hands, clear heads, open hearts. The future's in our own hands. Thanks so much. Canadian Hospital Foundations have launched the Frontline Fund to help more than 100 hospitals battling COVID-19 from the front lines. We're joined by President and CEO of the Royal Alexandra Hospital, Charlene Rutherford, to share more about the initiative. Good morning, Charlene. Good morning, Andrew and Sue. Nice to speak with you. Well, first of all, what is the Frontline Fund? 
Well, there's no question that the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, resulted in an unprecedented global catastrophe, and really it requires an unprecedented collaboration. And so that's what the Frontline Fund is. It's uh, essentially more than 140 hospital foundations and trusts across Canada who have joined together to raise money for hospitals that are battling COVID-19. I love that you're doing this as a a Canada-wide initiative because we hear so often, you know, where can I donate? How can I help out? And and some people just aren't sure. But if we've got sort of one umbrella that's, that's helping every community, this is a brilliant way to take care of that. Absolutely. You know, in Calgary, the Calgary Health Trust and the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation and the and the Red Deer Regional Hospital uh, Health Foundation are, are involved. And here up in Edmonton, it's us, the Royal Alex Hospital Foundation and the University Hospital Foundation. And it means that uh, for those Albertans who, who do donate, the money does stay regionally. It stays in Alberta, and that's fantastic. So, And there is one location to go to, CanadaHelps.org. Perfect. So you get online. Is it a a case of uh, a certain amount or is it uh, whatever you can afford to give? Whatever you can afford to give. We know that it's a it's a trying time and there's a lot of stress uh, in families right now because this pandemic has resulted not only in a lot of illness across the globe, but also a collapsing global economy. But you know what? In times like this, people really do come together and they give what they can and they and they and they help things along. And our healthcare workers uh, really need it. The front line need it, and they absolutely appreciate it so much. And for Canadian corporations, this is an absolutely fantastic opportunity to get involved too and to help. Wonderful. You know, I, I think appreciation is such an important word because I think we've really, you know, got a newfound appreciation, and and we're certainly all grateful to those frontline workers who are on the front lines taking care of all those sick people right now what is the money going to is it going to directly supply what they need specifically you know it's a cross-section of things it's supporting um yes some supplies for sure some personal protective equipment like masks disinfectants disposable clothing uh, diagnostic and testing equipment, uh, digital infrastructure. Uh, it supports peer-to-peer mental health support, counseling, uh, even accommodation and food for in, in some of these locations. So, uh, And, of course, it's also going to support research. Um, you know, there's no question that research is the track that the engine of clinical care follows. And it's clinical trials at our hospitals. Certainly the Royal Alex here in Edmonton, we're doing clinical trials. And it's it's what's going to make the difference ultimately to end end this this COVID nineteen pandemic. Right now our 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 vaccine prevention is social distancing. Mm-hmm. That's simply not enough. You know, Charlene, you mentioned CanadaHelps.org. Also seeing FrontlineFund.ca is one more for information and and one is more for donating, or can we go to either one? I think Frontline Fund is more for information. To make the donation, CanadaHelps.org is where donations are being received, and that's where individuals will receive their charitable tax receipt. For individuals, for companies, as you said, we all need to help out. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to speak on behalf of the Frontline Fund. What uh, an amazing collaboration this is. I think for the first time in Canadian history, you have this many foundations and trusts 
on behalf of hospitals collaborating together for a single cause. It's amazing, and I want to thank Albertans for responding. It's brilliant. Charlene Rutherford, thanks for joining us. President and CEO of Edmonton's Royal Alexandra Hospital. 649 on the morning news. We are joined by anchor and reporter for Global News Halifax, Sarah Ritchie, for the latest on the awful tragedy in Nova Scotia. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Let's start with uh, details surrounding a new report about how the shootings began. Uh, Some more details coming out yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Sources tell Global News that investigators have learned that the shooter and his girlfriend were at a party at a nearby home in Port-au-Pic when they got into some kind of an argument on Saturday night. They left the party and they believe that the argument escalated when they got home. The shooter assaulted his girlfriend, tied her up. She eventually escaped and hid in the woods for hours. At 7 o'clock the next morning, she was found by police. And it was at that point that she was able to tell police who the shooter was. And crucially, she was able to tell her, tell police rather, that he was likely dressed as a police officer and driving a fake police cruiser. She was the one who gave investigators that picture of that police cruiser that we've all seen sitting in the shooter's garage so that information drastically changed the investigation and we know that at that point police understood that they were dealing with a very different situation not just looking for an active shooter but looking for an active shooter who is pretending to be a police officer and maybe explains a little bit about why they didn't send out that you know warning on people's cell phones so perhaps we'll hear more about that but also the interesting information coming out yesterday sarah about how the shooter was eventually caught and shot. Right. So we understand from uh, reporting by uh, CBC News at this point that the shooter was in a second stolen vehicle. So in the course of all of what was happening on Sunday morning, late in the morning, he stole a vehicle, a Chevy Tracker, from one of the victims of all of this. And as he was driving that, RCMP started tweeting out updates to the public saying that he was in this Chevy Tracker. He belie- we believe he drove it to the home of another victim, Gina Goulet. And then stole her vehicle after killing her. It was her vehicle, which was apparently low on gas, that he was driving when he stopped at that gas station in Enfield, Nova Scotia, and there was an unmarked police car with several officers who just happened to be there at the same time. And we understand that those were the officers who eventually shot and killed the shooter. Of course, want to remember the victims of this, and uh, can't do it in person. Virtual vigils, uh, vigils rather. Uh, talk about one uh, that's going to be taking uh, place this evening. Yeah, so the main, the sort of main event in all of this is happening at 7 o'clock Atlantic time tonight. It's called uh, Nova Scotia Remembers a Loving Tribute. It's a virtual vigil that will involve uh, spiritual and musical aspects as well as uh, we understand some politicians, including the Prime Minister, will be taking part. So that is something that you can watch live online at 7 o'clock Atlantic on the globalnews.ca website. We'll have it on our Facebook page and our YouTube page as well. And if you do happen to get those time shifter channels, then you can watch on uh, Global Maritimes, so the Global New Brunswick or Halifax uh, channels. We'll have it at 7 o'clock Atlantic time. And I just want to note as well that there is a, a really important update coming in uh, just over one hour. We now know that our RCMP are going to be speaking to the public. They are going to be providing what they call a detailed account of everything that happened this weekend. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah, and thanks for joining us all this week to keep us updated on what's happening down in the Maritimes. Appreciate your time.
Thank you. And just a reminder, too, that uh, National Police Federation is asking all of us to wear red today in honour of that RCMP officer that was shot and killed. And that was Sarah Ritchie, anchor and reporter for Global News in Halifax. 8-11 on the morning news. YouthLink Calgary Police Interpretive Centre announced that it is going virtual to support families, youth and teachers. They are launching its first learning adventures by taking uh, crime prevention, safety and fun all online. We are joined by Executive Director of the YouthLink Calgary Police Interpretive Centre, Tara Robinson. Good morning, Tara. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time. And this is awesome. My kids have spent time at the Interpretive Center. They love it. <sighs> and obviously, all Calgary kids, all Southern Alberta kids don't have that opportunity right now. So you're taking it to the kids. Yes, you know, we know that uh, teachers and parents are working really hard, and you know this as well, to balance the needs of their students and children and families during this pandemic while also balancing the needs of life and work. So um, when we were closed, uh, we uh, approximately 3,000 students canceled from YouthLink programs, and we believe it's important to stay connected. So what we did is we reached out to teachers, and uh, we asked what they needed, and, and uh, so their feedback has really um, shaped our virtual programming. So uh, the first thing we did was we launched Cabin Fever Forensics, and we have some easy-to-follow science experiments that will keep your kids busy while practicing techniques used by, like, the real crime-solving experts. And these are things that you can do in your own home. For example, um, we show you how to lift fingerprints from inside your own home and the tools you'll need, like a blush brush, but you have to make sure you get permission from mom first. a mirror and some clear tape and a flashlight. Or or if you want to learn about DNA, well, you'll need some strawberries for that. Or if you want to learn the science around blood spatter, you'll need a bucket, of course, uh, some corn syrup, some red food coloring, and a spatula and sponges, among other things. And so these are kind of things to get engaged, the kids engaged at home. And coming up in the next couple of weeks, we'll have um, a police officer talking about how bugs help solve crimes and what you learn about bones and other things. So... We have lots of fun, uh, but as you mentioned, we are pretty serious about crime prevention. So, you know, families are spending a lot of time, a lot of quality time right now. So we're going to be uh, putting police officers on who are on a mission to help parents start those critical conversations um, around crime-related issues of today, like drugs and gangs and healthy relationships and cannabis edibles and that sort of thing. And of course, uh, cybercrime. We're spending so much time online. So um, one of the things our cybercrime expert talks about is how our technologically sophisticated children are getting around parental controls. So that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. So we're doing that kind of thing. Tara, I feel like I've been living under a rock because I really didn't know that much about YouthLink or the Calgary Police Interpretive Center. So can you kind of backtrack and give us a little Coles Note version of, of how long this program has been around? Sure. We are, uh, we're a not-for-profit um, and we are, um, we're, we're a police museum where crime prevention, education and community policing are at the heart of everything we do. You know how every museum educates, like the Human Rights Museum in Winnipeg or the War Museum in Ottawa? Mm-hmm. We're a police museum where we educate about crime prevention and education and and um, we really focus on on getting to kids because we know that if we can get the right information 
information to kids at the right age, we know that they can they can use that information to get themselves out of bad situations or they'll know they'll have strategies in place to deal with those peer pressure situations that we know that they're all going to encounter. Um, so uh, we were we used to run out of uh, out of downtown. Um, but then the flood closed us down, and we built a new facility uh, up here at police headquarters, and we're the only one of its kind in North America. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty cool. We've got um, we have other police services and other cities coming to look at our business model. So uh, so we're it's very interesting. We've got lots to show it, and in some of these, in some of our virtual learning, we take you behind the scenes, and we're going to be doing virtual tours to show you how uh, we lift the veil on policing and, and show you how some of the units uh, do their work and, and keep us safe. But uh, Calgary Police formed in 1885, so you can imagine wow. all the wonderful tools of the trade and the mug shots and like pictures of Calgary's earliest outlaws and some of the really incredible policing stories. We've got it all here, so we're going to be putting some of that uh, online as well, like our award-winning documentary on Black Friday, December 20th, 1974. It was the darkest day in, in police history, and it changed the way uh, police um, keep the community safe. But then we also talk about police women and some of the firsts there, too. So we're going to be putting all of this online, but we can't wait till we get open again to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, neither can we. But in the meantime, still staying connected to the community. So we appreciate the update and all the information, Tara. Thank you. And all this information is uh, available on our website. It, we're, we're loading more and more okay. uh, over the next weeks, youthlinkcalgary.com and on our social media channels. Sounds great. Again, youthlinkcalgary.com. That was Tara Robinson, Executive Director of the YouthLink Calgary Police Interpretive Centre. It is 7.09 on the morning news. Normally it's politics, uh, but these days it's pandemic uh, that we'd like to join Jackson Proskow for details uh, down south for. Uh, Jackson is, of course, the Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Jackson. Good morning. Well, you know what? I uh, thought that the no-brainer was uh, talking this morning and kicking off the segment with the president a while back saying, hey, governors, open your states when you want to, but... uh, Stop it right there, Georgia, that, that switch up. Uh, we'll get to that in a second, but I want to talk about the president's uh, medical <laughs> advice yesterday um, saying, and, and quite the backlash over this, that uh, disinfectant, the same uh, sorts of products we use to clean our counters, literally a cleanser, might be used to battle COVID-19 in humans. Yeah, and let's give you the context here, which is that Trump had called up his own science advisors to sort of talk about how the virus responds to sunlight at higher temperatures and different cleaning products as he sort of makes this push to say that the virus could go away in the summertime as things get warmer. After that, though, Trump came up to the podium himself and sort of started uh, freelancing and said, basically, if high levels of ultraviolet light can kill the virus, that we should look at bombarding the human body with high levels of UV light or getting that light inside the human body. Uh, and went on to say the same for disinfectants, that we should look at whether they can be injected or ingested to the virus. Uh, you could see the sort of discomfort amongst the science advisors in the room, and overnight the maker of Lysol actually had to put out a statement telling people not to inject or ingest any of their cleaning products because they will actually uh, be very harmful to your health. Did we hear from Dr. Fauci in response to this yet, or is he being gagged a little bit these days? 
Uh, he wasn't in the room yesterday. He doesn't come to all the briefings. Uh, you could see Dr. Burks uh, sort of sitting there very uncomfortably on the side of the room, and then the doctor who had been called up, the scientist, about the sort of life of coronavirus facing the different conditions, uh, really just sort of scuttled off the stage and, and, and didn't respond to that. Of course, uh, the mixed messages uh, seem to be continuing. And this, this, this incident that we have, incident we mentioned at the beginning of the segment here, uh, he said, uh, Donald Trump said, open when you can, governors, it's in your hands. Georgia uh, gets the green light to open from its governor, and now the president backtracking, and uh, now a lot of businesses, from what I understand, in Georgia are confused as to whether or not they should even be opening. Yeah, we should point out that Georgia never actually met the official White House guidelines for reopening. Uh, and those came out, of course, after the president had been pushing people to reopen as soon as possible. Then they came out with these sort of measured phased response, and Georgia sort of ignored that and did its own thing. Uh, as of today, bowling alleys and barbershops are uh, among the businesses that can reopen. And on Monday, restaurants and theaters can reopen. Uh, restaurants can have dine-in service again as of Monday. Uh, we should point out that they have to meet social distancing guidelines to reopen. It's not clear how you do that when you're getting a haircut or getting a tattoo. Uh, that's up to the businesses to figure out, I guess. Uh, at the end of the day, it's up to businesses to make the decision for themselves. They're not being forced to reopen. They're being allowed to reopen. Uh, I should point out, though, I was talking to a Canadian chef who lives in Georgia last night, and uh, he owns five or six restaurants. And he said, no way is he reopening for dine-in service. It's too soon. He doesn't want to put his customers or his own staff at risk. Uh, and he says, you know, if I had to open with only half as many tables in the restaurant, that's not a viable business to begin with. Jackson, what are the numbers as of this morning? And is the U.S. seeing any sign of improvement overall in the number of cases and fatalities? Uh, you know, the numbers are still uh, awful. They're abysmal. There are more than 46,000 fatalities. We'll likely cross 50,000 by the end of the weekend. Uh, we have seen the number of daily cases still remain stubbornly high. 32,000 new cases diagnosed yesterday in the U.S., and that's probably an undercount because testing is still uh, an access issue. It's still hard to get. And there were still 2,300 fatalities yesterday in the U.S. That remains the highest level seen by any country anywhere in the world. And that's not a one-day thing. It's been like that day after day after day now for uh, well over a week at this point. So uh, the bottom line is things are, maybe they peaked or they plateaued, but they're not on the decline yet. And they could say this very high, grim number for a while. You know, New York is seeing its numbers decline, but then places like here in Washington, they're seeing their numbers surge. So it's kind of uh, filling that gap. What about the uh, test kits that we heard so much about in the opening weeks of the pandemic? Are the test kits now available in, in all medical equipment? Are, are there shortages that you're hearing of? Yeah, you know, testing is still a real issue here uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, the health experts are saying you need to massively increase it if you're going to reopen the economy. You've got to be able to diagnose those cases quickly, and then you need an army of what they call contact tracers to track down people who may have been exposed and force them to isolate so the virus doesn't spread. Neither of those things are at the level uh, or capacity that would be needed to reopen the economy. And sort of the analogy that's been given is that the U.S. would need to get to a point where it's testing as many people every day as it's currently testing every week right now. They've got a long way to go. Jackson, uh, curious, too, about, uh, you know, Trump decided to freeze some immigration into the U.S. and is talking about stopping temporary work permits. How's that going over in the, in the states right now? So this is a bit of a, a bit of smoke and mirrors because immigration was effectively halted as soon as the U.S. closed its borders and told its embassies to stop issuing new visas. And that happens more than a month ago now. So this has not been happening anyway. All he's targeting with this new move are green cards for the next 60 days and essentially saying that, um, you know, people can't move into the country. He says it's so that they can't take American jobs. 
But the point is, he was on the warpath over this exact same issue when unemployment was only at 4%. Now it's at 15%, and he's got the exact same stance. So it seems as though he's using coronavirus to do what he's wanted to do for a very long time. And the pressure that the president is, uh, you know, feeling as far as reopening uh, different states, reopening the economy, the jobless claims 4.4 million in the past week, 26 million for the five-week total. The numbers are staggering, Jackson. Yeah, they really are staggering. Uh, I think think it gives you a a sort of a broad sense of how hard hit the U.S. economy has been uh, and how long it's going to take to recover. And there's still a, a good feeling that those numbers don't capture the full picture because people have had a hard time, you know, getting through to their state employment offices on the phone. Websites have been crashing. Uh, that's part of the problem. Uh, some people may not qualify for unemployment. I've been working in the gig economy, so they're not applying at all. Um, I think the, the takeaway here is it's going to be a very long time for things to bounce back. You know, we talk about the reopening of businesses and restaurants. There's a poll out this morning that shows that even if everything reopened to, to today or tomorrow, uh, 80% of Americans say they would feel uncomfortable about going out and going back into businesses mm. the way they did before this pandemic. Interesting stats for sure. Thanks for joining us, Jackson. Have a, a safe and quiet weekend. You too. That's Jackson Proskow, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. There's a unique national campaign to allow Canadians an opportunity to experience Ramadan while still conforming to the social distancing uh, guidelines set by health authorities. With more, we're joined by Zaki Ahmad with the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community. Good morning, Zaki. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Let's uh, talk about this because it's such an important event on the calendar. has to go on. This has to be the first time that something like this has happened, a virtual Ramadan. Certainly. I mean, we're in times that are unprecedented for our generation. Now, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Amelia Muslim Jamaat Canada has launched a special national campaign called Virtual Ramadan. Now, the Virtual Ramadan campaign is organized to give all Canadians a unique opportunity to experience Ramadan while still conforming to the social and physical distancing guidelines set by the health authorities. Zaki, is would this be a time where people are, you know, gathering with family and friends and really having big parties and celebrations today as part of Ramadan? And, and does, is that why this makes it even that much harder? <laughs> well, not not quite, because we still have to respect the health authorities. Um, the Amnia Muslim Jamaat strongly conf- um, confirms uh, the uh, the guidelines set by authorities. Now, as far as Ramadan as that is being celebrated this uh, this year. It's a very special month for all uh, Muslims. Um, simply put, uh, Ramadan is not just refraining from food, water, but also focusing on self-discipline and being thankful for everything we have. We, we, we wish to share this uh, wonderful month with all Canadians. does kick off tomorrow. You mentioned it's not just about uh, refraining from you know, uh, food and drink, uh, but let's break down exactly for those people who, who don't uh, celebrate Ramadan or don't have a friend or a coworker who celebrates Ramadan, can you give us the one-on-one as far as what the daily routine is like? Uh, certainly. It's uh, involved with an early morning um, meal and followed by uh, having a, a day where you're reflecting on, on uh, in worship and also reciting the Holy Quran, followed by the breaking of the fast at uh, sunset. It's definitely a difficult time for everybody not being able to be with friends and family and particularly for all of our Muslim friends who would be celebrating Ramadan. So talk to us about how people can go online and even maybe learn a little bit more about how uh, people of the Muslim faith will be doing this virtual Ramadan celebration. Certainly, it's certainly very different. Uh, So people can't go to the mosque for this year. 
But there are, the Ambiya Muslim Jamaat has uh, the spiritual leader, uh, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, who uh, televises uh, and live streams his sermons every week. And so people can uh, watch those and receive weekly spiritual guidance. On top of that, there's also the obviously the virtual Ramadan challenge, which I spoke about, whereby Canadians can also experience how to start, break a, a fast, all from the comfort of their homes through a fun virtual Ramadan challenge. A challenge, particularly if you're doing it for the first time, I would think that would be a challenge. Let's talk about the Muslim community in uh, Calgary and in Alberta, for that matter. How big is it? Do, do we have any sense of the numbers? I think uh, we can pr- pretty much say every Muslim across uh, Calgary is, is doing so, and I think that extends into the tens of perhaps hundreds of thousands of uh, Calgarians. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And again, that uh, website to go on is virtualramadan, R-A-M-A-D-A-N dot C-A, to enjoy the challenge for all Canadians. Thank you so much. That's Zuki Ahmad with the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and wishing all of our Muslim friends a blessed and peaceful Ramadan.